Well, thank you guys for coming. It's so wonderful to see. Um, anytime now, guys. Just want to just talk among yourselves. It's so wonderful to see um, friends and friends of friends coming along today. Um, it is a little bit different today. We don't usually have the candles and stuff, um, but we are usually here in the pub, and um, it's been going great so far. I want to talk to you. I want to talk to you about Jesus. Um, unsurprisingly, um, just. A couple of months ago, up at Southwark, so just a neighbouring borough, there was a, a kind of a piece of art that was put on some hoarding that said, if history could be folded, where would you put the crease? If history could be folded, where would you put the crease? And I thought it was, it was one of those things that just, um, it grabbed me. And I wonder what your answer would be. When you think about the history of the world as we know it up to this point, there are many, many sort of contenders for days or events or periods of time that have changed the course of history irreversibly. You can think about a moment like D-Day, which um, really brought the downfall of, of a tyranny, didn't it? A tyrannous empire. You could think about um, the onset of modern medicine and antibiotics and the engine and the discovery of electricity and these sorts of things. Or the day that Mohammed claimed to have received a revelation, the world changed as a result of that. And we could think of countless examples of this sort of thing, the days that have changed the world. And I would guess that if, you, if we went around and just sort of, I'm not going to do it right now, but if we were to ask each of you um, what you think is the crease in history, it would actually tell us an awful lot about you as a person. It would tell me something about your passions. Uh, it would tell me maybe a little bit about your personality. If you're a sort of pessimistic person, you might have chosen something awful and something that changed the world for the worst. Or an optimistic person, on the other hand, would do the opposite. Or it might, most importantly, tell me a bit about, give me some insight into your understanding of the storyline of history, how you construe life and what it's about and why we're here and where we're going. Whether you just view it in naturalistic terms as a kind of... Um, the climb out of the mud to greater, greater um, development as, as a human race, or whether you see it in religious terms, or how, however you see it. And I guess it's pretty obvious by now that I'm wanting to put across to you that, for me, Christmas is that moment in history. I mean, the original, the original moment when Jesus was born into the world. And I suppose it's not easy in, in the kind of modern context to make the case that Christmas marks the change of world history for, for lots of reasons. I read this week um, C.S. Lewis's little two-page essay about Christmas, and he, he says, what is Christmas? He says, on the one hand, it's a religious festival. That's fine. He says, on the other hand, it's a kind of a, a historical holiday with complex roots and all that. He says, that's fine. That's great if people want to keep a holiday. And then he says, it's a, also this commercial racket. And he was writing in 1957. And he said, it's just so annoying that in the run-up to Christmas, I'm, sure, I'm guessing things have only got worse since then, but in the run-up to Christmas, he said, you have to go around and tie yourself out buying gifts for people so that come the 25th of December, you're exhausted. And he said, what makes it more, even more irritating is that when someone gives you a gift unexpectedly, you have to rush out and go and buy them one as well. And he ended this little comment about Christmas just by saying, 
But if this is all for the sake of the shopkeepers, that's what we're told, that we need to keep supporting the shops. We hear the same thing on the news now, don't we? Um, he said, if that's the case, then I'd rather just give them money for free than have to put up with this nuisance. Now, C.S. Lewis was no Scrooge, but he certainly found the whole thing, the commercial side of things, a little bit irritating at least. And I suppose the reason why I say that is just that I think when you're trying to see what through Christmas and try and understand the profundity of it, there's not much about what happens at Christmas that would mark this as being a world-changing event, the original Christmas. There's nothing really that necessarily strikes you deep down in that sense. There's no gravitas to it. You know, just a, a month or so back, the commemorations for the centenary of the beginning of the First World War had more weight and emotion and depth to it with all the poppies around the Tower of London than anything that we see at Christmas. And, you know, to make it worse, I know that as Christians we don't always do a great job at putting across just how amazing Christmas is to us. I've been to far too many carol services with white people trying to sing Boney M's Calypso Carol in Jamaican accents, and it, it just doesn't put across... <laughs> How, how amazing and the depth and the weight of this time of year. So I just want to try and put across to you why I think this is, if you can ask me the question, where would you put the crease in history? I want to tell you why and give you three reasons. That it has to do with the expectations running up to the birth of Christ. That it also has to do with who he was or who he is, I would say. And then what he did with his life. Those are the three things I want to cover. Just beginning then with the expectations that ran up to the birth of Jesus. Now, whenever a child is born, Evelyn was just born how many, two weeks ago, wasn't it? Whenever a child is born, there's enormous anticipation. Um, in the, I know there's those rare exceptions where women just find themselves giving birth, and they have, where did this come from? But, and those are the rare exceptions. But by and large, most child is anticipated with, with joy or with fear or, or very often a mixture of the two. Just and tomorrow, my wife and I will be heading to St. Thomas's Hospital around the corner, where we'll have the first of two scans um, to find out what's inside her, and, uh, or how many there are. And um, It's an amazing experience. When you go in and you, you hear the heart beating on the, on the is it called a sonogram? Or, I don't know, that'll do, maybe that's the American way. When you hear the heart beating, it's an amazing experience to see this living thing. Like it, it kind of like jumps around a little bit in the womb if it's awake. And it, there's nothing quite like it. But for all the anticipation and excitement that surrounds the birth of children, there has been nothing in history to compare with the anticipation of the birth of Christ. Because it wasn't just a matter of eight or nine months and... Uh, or even the years of, of trying, Mary and Joseph were not trying, they weren't sleeping together, they weren't married. Um, there, there was hundreds of years of expectation, anticipation, that ran up to the birth of Jesus. The first reading that Joshua read to you from Isaiah chapter 9, it's right there in front of you, was written about 700, over 700 years before Jesus was born. And it's one of, of many dozens in the Bible of prophetic um, texts that, that predict the coming of this one that would be called the Messiah. It begins with just a kind of a hint at the beginning of the Bible, and it grows into a whisper, and then it's more of a clear voice. And eventually, it's like God is bellowing to his people about the coming of one who would be his son. And so with all this, 
this weight of expectation that we're seeing, divinely birthed, shared by an entire nation, there has been nothing, I, 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 don't think that, I can think of no examples in history that come even close to that anticipation of the birth of a child. Nothing in history that comes close to it. Now, you might say, so what? I think one of the things, the greatest challenges that I experience as, um, as a pastor, as a preacher, wanting to tell people about Jesus and what I believe to be true about him, is that more often than not, people, it's not that they're necessarily hostile to it, it's just that they're not even asking the questions to begin with. There's no sense in which they're ent- entering into the anticipation that Israel was experiencing in awaiting Jesus. And it's true, isn't it, that the things that we, we anticipate, we tend to enjoy more. So, you know, if we could speculate for a minute about the possibility that England could one day win the World Cup, you imagine the joy will be all the greater for the waiting, the years of pain, as they like to sing about it. But the same, the opposite is also true, that things that, that happen in your life that you haven't been anticipating, that you haven't been waiting for, you often miss the joy in the moment, don't you? And I think it's like that when we talk about the birth of Jesus. Because you can't put yourself into a first century Jew's shoes and understand the pain of waiting, the groaning, the hope of all the years of of prophecy and of talk about this coming one, because you can't empathize with that, you're not really interested in the answer. And it's, it's a little bit like sitting down at a dinner party with somebody who, um, you just sit down with the wrong person who who just likes to talk about themselves the whole time. And listening to me can be like that. Listening to a Christian talk about the birth of Jesus can be like that. You're not even asking the questions, for goodness sake. Why should you be interested in the answers? But I want to tell you why we all ought to to have that sense of expectancy in the way that Israel did in the run-up to Jesus' birth. There's a clue about the kinds of questions that he answers in the names that we read in in Isaiah. You can glance down at your sheet, just found verse 6, it's halfway down the reading. You see how Isaiah, speaking God's word, predicts these four names for what Jesus would be like. And for the hearers, for the listeners, what he was doing was, was answering all their hopes, really. For anyone who's asking, can someone show us the way to live? Can someone teach us what godliness is? His name is Wonderful Counselor, Wonderful Guide, Wonderful Teacher. For somebody who's asking, can somebody show us what God is really like? You know, it's one thing to, to have received the words of God sort of transmitted to us through and through a book, but to... To know what he's like, that was the burning question of, of, of the people. To see, to see him, to experience him. And so Jesus is called Mighty God. I think for people asking the question, how can we know real love? He's called Everlasting Father. Just yesterday I was listening to um, a, a social worker talking about her work among children who've experienced abuse of different kinds. And she was... She was saying that children who've grown up in homes where they've experienced the abuse of being neglected 
And she gave a story of, of a boy who, who didn't have a bed. He was a couple of years old and he was sleeping in a car seat in his room. And she said, this child, um, he didn't have the basic love that all children should, should have in their childhood. So much so that his growth was stunted. They call it failure to thrive. That if you aren't experiencing love and tender care, your body will demonstrate these limitations. They said they took this child out of the home and put him in, in a foster care family where the parents were loving. And she said just within a couple of weeks, we began to see him growing inches as this child experienced the love of loving family. And when, when Isaiah is telling us that this Savior who will come will be called Everlasting Father, the resonance of that is supposed to ring in your heart for the ache, the universal human ache to know love that is unconditional, that covers over all your mess. And then he's called Prince of Peace, which for all of us from time to time or even constantly for many who experience the turmoil of anxiety, of sometimes depression, of guilt, And all these things, he says the Savior will be called Prince of Peace because he will bring peace into the hearts of of men and also to society at large. This is why I'm saying to you that the expectations are an enormous part of what made the coming of Christ so significant in history. The second thing I want to talk to you about, though, is, is who he was, his identity. And in particular, the fact that he was divine. In Isaiah's, in the passage from Isaiah, you see that his name is, is Mighty God. When, you might remember from your school plays and whatever, that when the angel comes to, to Mary, he, he quotes another passage from a later chapter in Isaiah, actually an earlier chapter in Isaiah, where the name of Jesus is, is Emmanuel. We've been singing it today. It's a, it's a compound of, of the word El, which means God, and Emmanu, which means with us. So it just means God with us. And the claim was that Jesus is divine, that he is the Son of God. Now, this, this idea that Christ is, is the God-man is one of these claims that is a kind of all-or-nothing thing. It's the same, same goes for the, the claim that he rose from the dead. If you believe it, everything about history, everything about the world, everything about life as you know and understand and explain it is changed in the light of that fact. If you don't think it's true, then you can dismiss Christianity out of hand. It's an irrelevancy. Now, when I, when I talk with people about this, about our belief, our claim about who Jesus is and his divinity, I think the two fatal errors or mistakes that people fall into are that on the one hand, there's a tendency, especially in, in modern Western naturalistic thinking Britain to just dismiss the idea out of hand. If you've already decided that there's no God and if you decided miracles can't happen, very often people just think the claim can just be battered aside without a further thought. But I think there's another mistake people fall into which for me I, in some ways is just as bad, which is just to accept it in an unthinking way. Maybe you've grown up in a religious home or going to a religious school, you've just heard it again and again that Jesus is the Son of God. If I was to put you on the spot and ask you, well, who is Jesus? You might say, he's the Son of God. But has it sunk in? Has it made any difference to your life? 
And I would want to persuade you that the reality of Christ's divinity ought to change everything for you. And that you can't dismiss it that easily. Think of it this way. If you were to draw up a list of the most influential people in history, my guess is Jesus is going to be in the top ten, and for many, the top five. And for many, and I think fairly, he'd be number one, as the most influential person who's ever lived. And if we, on the other hand, had a list of of people who've claimed to be God, there's only one person who, who... who actually sits on both of those lists. Most of the guys who claim to be God in history have themselves been nutcases or had a small sort of disenfranchised group of, of marginalized people and who found themselves separated from society. And that, that's been the story. And most of the great people through history, on the other hand, have not wanted to draw attention to themselves. In fact, that's one of the very things that makes them great, is that they go around pointing to their cause. You think about someone like Gandhi or Madiba, Mandela in South Africa, and their, their passion for their cause. It wasn't about themselves. But Jesus somehow sits on both of these lists as a guy who's made a profound influence in history and also made claims about himself that don't allow you to dismiss him as just a kind of a good teacher or a normal bloke. He said things like that I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father except through me. And I would want to urge you that no thinking person can hear Christ's claims about himself and dismiss them without at least understanding, at least looking into it on some level. The weight of the claim demands an appropriate response. If you were to receive a letter through the mail tomorrow morning that has the stamp of um, one of the great London law firms you know, Clifford Chance or Alan Overy or one of these ones. Sorry, I didn't mention, sorry to the lawyers in here if I've not mentioned your law firms, but um, (laughs) we've got quite a few of them. If that letter had within it the claim that you were, you know, something amazing, like that you were an inheritor to the, the throne of England or whatever, then you would pay attention because of the weight of, of, of the stamp on that paper. You know, if you had a letter through the post that came from the Inland Revenue that said that you were due a rebate um, of so many hundreds or even thousands of pounds, you're not going to dismiss it in the same way you, you dismiss those emails that tell you that it can offer you millions of pounds if you just give them your bank details. This has this got weight. It's got credibility. And the claims about Jesus are so weighty, so powerful, so important in history that I think to, to either just accept them without thinking not engage with them or dismiss them out of hand are are equally dangerous things to do. If what he said is true about himself, if he was divine, what difference would that make to you? I think one of the most important realities of his divinity is that in, in, in God becoming man, he showed us what God is like. The New Testament uses language about Jesus that he's the image or the, the picture of the invisible God. That suddenly what couldn't be seen can be seen. That you read the Gospels and God become flesh. Now we can know God in a way that's more real, more intimate, more profound than ever. John, one of Jesus' disciples, in fact all of Jesus' followers, the apostles, they never got over this fact 
that they had, they'd hung out with, with God in, in human flesh. When, you, when you're reading the New Testament and you're reading the letters they wrote, these guys, even into their old age, those who lived into old age, were utterly just gobsmacked by this fact. We can read one of John's letters. John was the only one of the 12 apostles who actually died of natural causes. The rest were put to death. But in his old age, he's writing to a church. And he says this. He says, we saw him with our own eyes and touched him with our own hands. He's Jesus Christ, the word of life. This one who is life from God was shown to us. And we've seen him. And now we testify and announce to you that he is the one who is eternal life. He was with the Father, and then he was shown to us. We're telling you about what we ourselves have actually seen and heard, so that you may have fellowship with us, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. You see how he says it again and again. We're telling you about what we have seen. He was shown to us. And the promise of the scriptures is that because God became man, you can know God. That you can know the answers to your longings, your questions, your, your heart's desires in Christ. Lastly then, I think that the history is folded because of Christ, because of the expectations running up to his coming, because of who he was, but also because of what he did with his life. I don't think you could make this kind of claim if somebody didn't make a substantial difference to the world as a result of what they did. And this is why Christmas is important. This is why we celebrate Christmas. We don't celebrate the birth of people just for the fact that they're born. We celebrate because of what they did with their lives. So when we celebrate Shakespeare's birth or Churchill's birth or whoever, it's what they achieved. And that is no less true with Jesus. Even just a bare reading of the facts of history would show you that Jesus was amazingly influential in his, in his teaching, in his life, and, and all those things. But there's another dimension to this and what he achieved, which I think has changed the world. When we were reading, and Jenny read to us appropriately, because she's also pregnant, you'll have noticed, Mary's song uh, in her pregnancy about her excitement, anticipation, and thanksgiving to God, that, that God had chosen her, a servant, to be the mother of the Son of God, and what that would mean. Even in her singing, she, could not, she couldn't foresee what Jesus, how Jesus would be the Savior that was promised. I think a lot of people at the time had an imagination about what the Messiah would do and how he would, he would go about his saving work. But Mary didn't really fully understand it, and it, so it doesn't come out in her song. It comes out later. Just in the next chapter of Luke, when she goes to temple with, with her baby, with Jesus. He's eight days old, and she goes to get him circumcised, as every Jew um, still does to this day. And when she's at the temple, a man called Simeon uh, goes to them at God's instruction. God speaks to him and says, go to the temple, because God has told him he's not going to die until he sees the Messiah. And he's an old man by this point. And he begins to he begins to rejoice because he says, I can die in peace. I've, I've now seen this baby. But then he says these, these words, which I'm guessing must have cut Mary to the heart, to the core. When he says to her, that this child will be rejected by many in Israel. And it will be their undoing. 
I don't know any mother who holds their child and wants their child to experience anything close to suffering. It's not something you wish for them. But this is what she was being told. And he goes on and says, He will be the greatest joy to many others, and thus the deepest thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your very soul. He was telling her that she was going to experience the pain that a mother should never have to experience, which is outliving your child. But what he was actually doing was, was hinting at, pointing at something which the Old Testament had talked about, which was the necessity that the Savior would have to die. And there's a sense in which the, the shadow of the cross is looming over the crib where Jesus is lying as a baby. Because I think it's accurate to say that Jesus was born in order that he might die. He was born with the purpose of going to the cross. So when you think about the great Christian festivals of Christmas and Easter, what I'm saying to you is that you can't understand Christmas. You can't understand why it's so important unless you understand Easter. Unless you understand the death of the Savior. The fact that he rose from the dead three days later. They're so intimately bound together. Why did he have to die? There's a hint in his name. The name is Yeshua, which is the Hebrew for Jesus. And it just means Yahweh is salvation or Yahweh saves. Mary and her friends and I suppose everyone at the time had an anticipation of what the kind of salvation that this child would bring into the world. It was a, hopefully a deliverance from Rome and all the rest of it. But what they didn't quite grasp, what they hadn't yet understood, was that the salvation Jesus came to bring was something much bigger than just temporary circumstances. It was the sickness that is at the rottenness at the core of the world and of the human heart, of sin and rebellion against God. Jesus came into the world to become our redeeming sacrifice on the cross. And so Christmas and Easter are are tied together. His purpose in being born is to go to the cross and not just in a generic way, to die as some kind of example to us or uh, for some pointless reason, but to die for the very specific reason that he had to carry your sins. He had to be your substitute, as Danny put it earlier. He had to be your sacrifice in your place. And we're not talking about fantastic um, sort of Claims, mythological claims here, like you might read in a novel like Lord of the Rings or like you hear, hear in the sort of the ancient Greek stories. We're talking about stuff that happened in history. His real death, his real resurrection from the dead. What difference that makes is, is of course, I mean, for me, it's just no question. This is why I say this is the crease in history. Before Christ, there wasn't the salvation. After Christ, we can look at the cross and know that he died for me with purpose. And yet, Christmas isn't some kind of morbid celebration then when we're thinking about the cross 
an Easter that's hanging behind the birth of this child. Christians don't mourn the death of Jesus because we know he rose from the dead. We only mourn the sin of ours which put him there on the cross and which necessitated his saving mission into the world. So my hope for you, my prayer, is that you might, maybe for the first time, realize the difference that Christ made in history, and not just at the global scale, but the difference that he can make in your life. 